good to see you guys. The craziness of the art conference, right? Uh, we've we've uh, gone over fire code, and there's a bunch of people out there waiting to get in. Uh, but it's great to be with you guys. I want to encourage you, okay? I've, I've, I've been where you've been, okay? We planted a church when I was 28 years old. I tell church planters all the time, don't plant a church when you're 28. You're stupider than you think you are. And my, my wife, Trisha, who's standing in the back of the room, my 20-year-old daughter, she was six months old when we moved to plant the church. So she would stand at the back of these conferences and rock the baby and try to find a place to feed the baby. And so we understand that aspect of it. Then a fast-growing church, you know, we broke a 1,000 for the first time at three years old. And um, I thought I was very, very successful. My wife called me out on it. I was not being successful in lots of ways. I'm going to talk about that today. And then I'm, I'm not as smart as Pastor Chris, but um, we're wired a lot alike. I always felt like an executive trapped in a pastor's body. And most church planners are not great at systems and processes. Can I get a witness? And I realized I was really good at that stuff. And so we started coaching church planters back in 2001. So I've been coaching pastors for 18 years. A lot of that I was a pastor. But over time, I just came to embrace the fact that I was a good pastor. Our church grew to about 3,000 people. We saw over 2,000 people go public with their faith through baptism while we were there. But in the meantime, I realized, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good preacher. I'm a really good coach. And we handed off the church four years ago. It didn't implode when I left. I'm proud of that. And because it wasn't built around me. And it was, it was a healthy church built around good processes and systems and blocking and tackling, good culture, good team, good systems. Now I've been coaching pastors now for 18 years through now what we call the three gears of growth. And I'm going to show this to you. A lot of our coaching, consulting with churches is around what I call the three gears of growth. If you can't see all this, it's all over our website, couragetolead.com. You've heard of these three words, culture, team, and systems. What a lot of people don't talk about the fact is that they are three separate but interdependent gears. So if, if one's stuck, you're stuck. I've been studying church growth for the last 15, 17 years. I've been tracking the top 10 fastest growing churches in America for 10 years. And I call these the three irreducible minimums. Everywhere where you find a church growing, I can trace it back to these three things. Every time a church stops growing, I can trace it back to one of these three things. And you're only as strong as your weakest gear. So John Maxwell says, focus on your strengths. I love John. Been a mentor of mine for a long time. But it's the only point at which I disagree with him. Because I've never had a pastor say to me, man, what took us down was our strengths. Right? It's your weaknesses. It's your blind spots. It's your Achilles heel. So we help churches sort of identify their weakest gear. And we develop an attack strategy around it to get better starting with the, the top leadership team, the top tier and all of that. So we, we do one-on-one -on -one coaching. We've got 17 coaches from, from downtown Los Angeles to New Jersey, Chicago, Indianapolis, dotted down into the South. We would love to be your coaches. That's why I do what I do. You've got a card in your chair. We had, I had a book that hit number one in church leadership last week on Amazon. I'm giving you the book today. It came out on Amazon one week ago. You've got a digital download card there in your, in your deal. But really, it, we, we talk about in there what we've been coaching pastors and churches around for 18 years. And I'm going to try to sum up the entire book in about 45 minutes. And we'll do some Q&A, okay? I love you. I've been in your seat. I, I, I've been isolated. I've been alone. I've been a workaholic. I've made all the mistakes. Here's what you need to know. The church is people. So successful people make up successful churches. Successful people make up successful staffs. One of the biggest lies from hell I ever believed is that if I could just hire this person, it would solve our problems. Then you realize every person is a problem. Come on now. Every person is a problem. You take one sinner, put them with a lot of other sinners, you've got synergy. Okay. So it's not going to get it's not going to get easier. You better create a plan to grow yourself as a leader. And you better create a plan to grow your leaders. And as God blesses your church, if you start your own coaching network and speaking and writing and you move off and leave your people, it's going to implode. Your own church will implode. I get very concerned about fast growing ministries because everything will get wobbly up underneath the people that we're building in our churches. So I, I want you to last the long haul. 
I want you to measure success the right way. So the question is, what is success? What is success? What does it look like in your ministry for you to be successful, for everyone in your success, in your ministry to have success? And I call them the five major metrics that matter. The five major metrics that matter, and they're not what we're talking about most of the time. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these. So these can form a personal leadership structure plan for your life. Most leaders want to grow. They just don't have a plan for growth. I really do think most of us are waiting on Jesus to grow our church. He's waiting on us to get better, to get prepared to handle the people he wants to handle us. I mean, if we're stressed out and frustrated now, agitated and angry now, why would God break our backs by sending twice as many people? So we've got to get better, okay? Look at the person next to you and say, I've got to get better. I've got to get better. I've got to get better. And you've got to help your team get better. They're not going to get better on their own, okay? We lead a Highlands College small group in our house every week. We've got a couple of those in the, in the, in the, in the, in the house today. But I'm telling you, they won't just be ready. Okay, they still need development. They still need coaching. They still need discipleship. They still need training. You're going to have to spend time and you're going to have to develop an intentional growth strategy for the people on your team. It doesn't matter whether you're leading the children's ministry or the whole church or the greeters ministry. You got to develop and build people. You've got to have a plan. You got to help them have a plan for their lives and for their leadership. So that's what I want to talk about. We call those the five gears of personal growth. It's purpose, it's passion, it's priorities, it's progress and people. And I'm going to run through these and then I'm going to let you ask questions that'll help you contextualize all of it. I want to walk through these. Let's talk first and foremost about purpose, believing in myself and embracing my uniqueness. I told you I started a church when I was 28 years old. Those first two years were the hardest years of my life, my marriage, my ministry. I doubted my calling. I doubted my abilities. I doubted my salvation, probably. (laughs) How many of you planted a church? How many of you know it's difficult? How many of you know working for a church is difficult? And it'll it'll cause you to doubt everything about yourself. I'm a thrill seeker. Any thrill seekers in the house? I've I've driven a I've driven a race car around the racetrack at 181 miles an hour. Jumped out of a perfectly good plane, 14,000 feet. Climbed the pyramids in Egypt. Visited the Taj Mahal. Camped out in the Grand Canyon. I'm a thrill seeker. But the truth is, like, the older you get, the less risk you tend to take because you think to yourself, wow, I could have gotten killed doing that. I'm not as bulletproof as I once were, and your knees and your joints start aching and all of that as you get older. I just turned 48, okay? I'm paying for all my sin in my joints, okay? It's not the age, it's the mileage. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've got a lot of mileage. I flipped the odometer, so to speak. But the older you get, you take less risks. It's also true in your ministries, in your leadership. You set out, change the world, you're going to make a big difference, and then you fail. You experience a setback, hiccup, okay? You're not the next Chris Hodges like you thought you were. And your life doesn't meet your expectations. You have some battle scars and wounds in ministry. Anybody got ministry scars? And all of a sudden, you start making decisions through the lenses of fear rather than faith. Fear of what you're going to lose, fear of what you're going to give up. Fear of getting bit like you got bit the last time from a leader who kissed you on the cheek and stabbed you in the back, whatever it might be. And you sort of lose your confidence. You lose your spiritual swagger, so to speak. And one of the things I want to help ministry leaders do is get their swagger back. And it really has to do with embracing your uniqueness. We've got too many counterfeit copycat churches in the social media age, okay? I see it all the time, trying to dress like so-and-so, trying to be like so-and-so. I'm, I'm telling you, there are a lot of ministries that, that, have, that have hazers and Hillsong music that aren't growing. It's a shocker, I know. Okay? You don't need to try to be like some other pastor, some other church to, to, to bring God's best for your life. You know what you need to do? Be the best version of you. That's what you need to do. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to be the best you, okay? You can't be Chris Hodges, all right? He's a genius. I know him well. He's my pastor. We attend church here now. Know him well. He's a genius. You can't be him, okay? He doesn't want you to be him. Now, you can learn from him. You can learn from our church. You can learn from our, you can learn from these pastors. Take back the transferable principles and practices. Conferences of all places, if you're a smaller church, can leave you feeling very condemned. 
because you begin to think of everything that you're not and everything that you don't have. And I run into pastors all the time and say, well, you don't know, it's harder here in Baltimore and we don't have those people and we don't have a lot of money and we don't have this and we don't have a big staff. We didn't have a big launch team. But here's what you need to hear today. You're not responsible for where you're not and what you don't have and what you can't do. You're only responsible for what you do have and what you can do with the people you got. And if you'll be faithful with the little, my gospel says Jesus will trust you with more. But we're always wanting and hoping that somehow it'll just be, you know, wave arc dust over us, you know, and and growth will just happen automatically. The truth is we've just got to get better. We've got to get better. We've got to maximize our resources. The most important thing you can do as a church is become the best version of you. I was talking with one of the pastors over here earlier. They said, we took the kind of the growth track idea, but we do it in two classes and we do it here and they've contextualized it and they've made it their own. I just want to give you permission to be you. Be you. Be the best version of you. Be the best version of your church, okay? If you're, if you're like every other church in town, why not just merge in with them? Learn from them. Don't get isolated. The number one mistake I see pastors make is isolation. Do you guys know Sunday comes every seven days? It's a grind sometimes if we're honest. And you get busy and you get isolated. I I salute you for being out, meeting new people. Because if you stop learning, you'll stop growing. And if you stop growing, the ministry will stop growing. It will. So get out, learn. Just don't be a cheap counterfeit good. Don't be a copycat church. You guys get together and say, hey, in, in light of what we've all learned, what, how do we need to filter this through the lenses of our leadership and our discipleship plan and our worship service and all that? Don't worry about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Just start blocking and tackling in your ministry and get better at what you do. I'm convinced almost any discipleship plan will work. You just have to work the plan. And we'll talk about that more as we, as we go along. So just be the best version of you. That is your purpose in everything you do. So the second way we measure success is through our priorities getting focused. Andy Stanley was my mentor for about a decade. I pastored in Atlanta. I was able to spend a lot of time with him early on in our church. He told me this in 1999. I was 28 years old. He said, Sean, when you start a church, you have to do everything. But the longer you do everything, you become the lid on the ministry. Now, I listened to that, but it went in one ear and out the other. Because four years later, I was the church planter, senior church pastor, and I was still doing setup and takedown on Sunday mornings at 5 a.m. Shocker, that's not the best use of the senior pastor's time on Sunday morning, okay? And some of you guys need to understand that you're trying to do too much. Your church is trying to do too much. You're running 50 people and one family comes up to you about running a student ministry and you start, you try to start motion on student ministry with 50 people, okay? You don't need to do more. You need to do less, Okay, when I was a senior pastor of a mega church, we didn't have a women's ministry. We didn't have a men's ministry. We didn't do vacation Bible school. We didn't do camps or retreats. How many of you are getting set free right now? Okay, the fastest growing churches I know do less than everybody else. So you, you got to be focused. But this is also true in your ministry and your leadership. Okay, you're not going to have enough money to hire doers of the ministry. You're going to have to hire equippers. More staff people won't solve your problems. You need to hire very, very few people. And the only people you hire are developers. They're equippers. There are two categories of people in the church. People who are paid to be good, people who are good for nothing. Very few of us, according to the New Testament, should be paid to be good. Most everybody else should be good for nothing. Okay? So on our staff, I would never pay anybody to be a doer. If you're a doer, you're not going to be able to keep up. If you have to counsel everybody that wants to get saved, how is 3,000 people going to get saved in our church? Okay, you got to build a team. You got to recruit a team. If I'm paying you, I better not see you toting a ladder, designing a logo. Okay, that's a doer. You're going to become the bottleneck. You're not going to be able to keep up. You got to be an equipper of the ministry. You're going to have to give up to go up. You're going to have to get more focused in your leadership. It's true for a church as well. We need to audit everything we're doing, every event, every program, every environment, every ministry. Every, th- every time we do something, let- let's try to audit what we do and get it down to just a few things. All right? So how do we, how do we get more focused? How do we become more prioritized? Taking a, an analogy from the world of athletics, when your kids are young, you, you encourage them to play lots of sports. 
get to high school, you begin to realize because the time commitment, I mean, they might be able to do a couple of sports. You get to college. I mean, one out of a hundred college athletes will play multiple sports. You get to the professional level. I mean, you're talking about a very elite group of people, Neon Dion and Bo Jackson, you know, maybe Tim Tebow have been somewhat successful in multiple sports. I think this is true in ministry as well. As the skill level needed increases, so must the level of our focus. This is true for you as a leader. You've got to do less. You've got to give stuff away. You've got to become more focused. You've got to initiate rather than respond and react all the time. You should not be running around like a chicken with your head cut off on Sunday. The most successful team members that I want on my team are standing around on Sunday morning like this. They're just standing there. You know why? Because they've raised up a team. They were prepared. And it's not all built on their shoulders. It's not a personality-dependent ministry. So if, if when the children's director is out, the whole children's ministry goes to hell in a handbasket, that's a problem. That's a problem. Okay? That's why we've got to focus on a few things. And we've got to send leadership to the edges and raise up teams and be leaders. The reason why most churches get stuck about two to 300 people when they're planted is because it's all the church planter and maybe one other full-time person could do. It's all on their backs. So if you want to get to the next level, maybe the preaching needs to get a little bit better. Maybe the music needs to get a little bit better. But for the next level, it's going to rise and fall on your ability to build teams. And you do less and put more, move more to the edges with, with, with other people. Ephesians 5, 17 says, therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. So here's three priority questions for you and or your ministry and or your leaders, all right? Number one, what are my fab five? Or what are our five fab five? What are the five things that I could be doing that provide the greatest return on investment for the ministry? I think time is a more precious commodity than money. Because we recognize that money is a commodity, but we waste inordinate amount of time. We play trivial pursuit with our calendars. One of the things we do with pastors is we, we perform what's called a calendar audit, where we I basically sequester the last two months of their calendar. It's the twilight zone. Huge chunks of unscheduled, unaudited time. And so we're just, we just run around reacting all the time. Instead of putting those five things that we believe in this season of the ministry provide the greatest return on investment for our time. Talk about a great discussion to have with your staff, your launch team, your lead team. Hey, what are the five things we need to put all of our time and energy and effort into? What's going to provide the greatest return on investment? For example, I've never had a pastor say to me, Sean, we really took off when I started doing more counseling. And yet so many pastors I ran into, well, I'm doing a lot of counseling, you know, right now. So you've, you've got to decide in advance how you're going to spend your time. And I don't know what leader ever invented this idea that we as leaders should have an open door policy where we're just available and accessible all the time, but they weren't a leader. Okay. Jesus was not even available and accessible to everybody all the time. Do a Bible study in the Gospels when G- all the times Jesus was trying to get away from people. It's true. Look at it. I mean, every time you drop in the Gospels, Jesus is like, let's get out of here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Why? To get away from the crowds, to be with the leaders. To be with the leaders. I'll have a, a, a pastor call me sometime and they'll say, got a problem with my worship leader, Sean. It's always a worship leader. Always a worship leader. Got a problem with the worship leader. He doesn't get it. He's not on board. Doesn't understand the vision. You know what my first question always is? Tell me about your weekly meeting with him. Oh, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's not full-time. He's bivocational. You know, um, I got, I'm doing a kind of a coaching thing. I've been traveling a lot right now. You know, we communicate. You know, we're on planning center. So he drops the things down on there and I drop my outline in like late Saturday night, you know, whatever. Pastor, here's your problem. Your worship leader doesn't know you. 
You're running around reacting to all the crisis and you're not developing your team, which your team is going to provide the greatest return on investment. Jesus knew this. He knew the impact wasn't on the fringes and with the masses. It was with the few that had impact and influence. They had to get it. He would almost secretly hide things from the crowd and explain it in full to the 12 so the the, the leaders got it. This is why you got to become more focused. You don't need to spend more time with more people. You need to spend more time with less people, doing less things to make you more successful. So develop your Fab Five. Then what do I need to stop doing? I think every leader ought to maintain a stop doing list. You need to just think about three things right now. That's dumb, okay? I need to stop doing that in the name of Jesus. I need to give that away. I need to stop tinkering with that, okay? If you design a logo and you're getting paid to be good, shame on you, okay? That's cheap work for somebody else to do, okay? A college student can do that, probably better than we can. So a lot of the things we're doing, an 11th or 12th grader in high school could do. Give it away. Stop in the name of Jesus, all right? Make you a stop doing list and give it away. And am I living life in rhythm? Am I living life in rhythm? I don't believe in balance. Uh, I don't think balance is biblical. I've never met a balanced person. You ever met a balanced person? It's that idea of giving equal energy and attention to everything at the same time. I don't even think Jesus was balanced. I can't even find the whole God family ministry anywhere in scripture, by the way. Test me on it if you want to go there. There was a time when Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him in the gospels and he's in the middle of preaching. And if Jesus had always put his family first, he would have dropped preaching and gone home. Instead, he said, no, 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 you tell them I'm, I'm talking to my spiritual brothers and sisters right now. So Jesus actually had this rhythm between intensity and rest. I see this in the biblical order. We invented the 40-hour work week. Okay, we want to try to do that. And as the church grows and matures, we want to work nine to five. The truth is we were created to work 12 hours a day, sun up to sundown. In biblical days, that's how they worked. They got up when the sun went up, they went to work, and they worked till sun went down, and then they went to bed. They didn't have Netflix. There was nothing to do. And then they got up the next morning. They did that six days in a row times 12 hours a day. Who's my mathematician? 72-hour work week. Who just got encouraged? Who just got depressed? That's what we were created for. Then the seventh day was so serious, they wouldn't even cook that day. Sabbath, cease striving. Most violated commandment of pastors, Sabbath, okay? Because you're not planning your time well, you're reacting, and you're trying to do too much. Let me ask you a question. Would Jesus ask you to do more than what's physically possible in six days? It's sin. It's missing the mark. You need to repent. I have, I do, when I violate it but I've gotten way better at it. The idea of rhythm is when you're at work, you need to be working. But when you're at home, you need to be home. It's living in this rhythm between intensity and rest. And you're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to keep up. You're going to be a statistic. You're going to quit. I know hundreds and hundreds who have, and I don't want it to happen to you. If you don't build teams, raise up leaders, trust God and rest, you're not going to make it. Aren't you glad you came dark? I want to speak prophetically over your life. I want you to hear me. Okay, you're not going to be able to keep up. You're not that good. You're not that strong. It's going to bite you. So you need to have a daily finish line, a time when you quit working. You need to have a weekly finish line, a time when you quit working. You need to have a date night. You need to have a family night. You need to take vacation. Go off. I told you our church really took off. First two years were really difficult. Third year, we moved in a new building. Just it went crazy. I'm feeling good about myself for the first time in several years. Lying in bed with my wife, Trisha, one night, and I say, honey, how do you think things are going? Guys, I don't know if you've ever like walked off the stage, asked your spouse how the message was, really fishing for a compliment. And I expected her to say something like, wow, Sean, you are a great man of God and it is an honor to be seen with you in public or something like that. You're a great leader, you know. She said, you really want to know how I think things are going? Yeah. Like any wise man at that moment, I'm like, 
I think I want to know. It was just real quiet for a minute. And then she said, I don't, I think you've allowed this church to turn you into a workaholic. And I don't like you very much right now. And she said, you're never home. When you're home, you're agitated, you're frustrated. She said, you become this very negative person. Everything's wrong with everyone and everything all the time. All I hear is just negative. You never laugh. You never smile anymore. She said, Hannah, who had moved there six months old, she was two and a half now. She said this on this night. She said, Hannah, I don't even know if Hannah knows you. And she said, I'm not sure I want her to know the real you. She said, I've caught myself wanting the guy that's on the stage, not the guy that comes home. And she wasn't yelling. She wasn't screaming. We weren't in an argument. And by the way, ladies, like we men, we never see this coming. Like if you're wondering if we see it, no, we don't. We're that dumb. In all my years of coaching men, I have never had a man say to me, Sean, I totally saw it coming. Never. And I didn't. But like on this night, the Holy Spirit used her and I didn't get defensive. And I listened and scales fell off my eyes and I repented. And I stand before you, a man who's been healed of my workaholism. And we took back our ministry. And I was never out more than two nights a week. And when I handed the church off, you know, some 17 years later, I, what, I, what I was most proud of, we stayed true to the vision. My wife liked me, respected me, and my kids loved the church. That, my friend, is success. That's success. So success is being fully where your feet are. It's when I'm at work, be at work. When I'm at home, be at home. One of the things my wife said to me back then, she said, every day you walk in the, in the door at the end of the day, you've got this glued to your ear. And we come to the door to see you and you're still working. You're still on your phone. You've just swapped locations. So one of the commitments I made to her almost 20 years ago is that I would never walk in the door at the end of the day still on my cell phone. I've kept that commitment. Now, sometimes I have to circle the neighborhood a couple of times. <laughs> Idle in the garage. You know, but, I, but I've, worked really diff, I've, I've worked really diligently at beating my body in submission, training my mind to shut down, to be fully present at home. To be fully present at home. In today's age, we have too many people who are guilty at work thinking they should be at home and guilty while they're at home thinking they should be working. Be fully present. Give your all, bring your intensity at work. We were created to work. Don't complain about working for the church. Quit if that's the case. All right? You get to, not you got to. No whining, complaining, growing. It is a privilege to serve him. It is a privilege to impact people's eternal destinies. Don't you complain and grab about it one ounce of your time. Change that and be fully present and enjoy the journey along the way. Thirdly, measuring, monitoring success, setting goals and maintaining discipline. I'm going to set some of you free just talking about this today. But first, every great leader I know, from Craig Groeschel to Chris Hodges to Joel Osteen to Stephen Furtick to, I mean, just on and on and on down the list. Andy Stanley, these great people I've been able to get to hang out with. Larry Osborne, another one of my mentors, some of you guys might be familiar with. Every great leader I know has two primary characteristics. They're extremely focused and extremely disciplined. They're extremely focused and they're extremely disciplined. So when we talk about making progress in our lives, how do we make progress? We set goals. We set goals. How do we do that? One, we focus on our habits. We focus on our habits. We largely become in our churches and in our leadership, the sum of our habits. What we work on the most, what do you know? It produces fruit. What we neglect ends up biting us. So we largely become the sum of our habits. What are your habits on your team, in your life? How do you order your day? Is it on your calendar? One of the things Trish and I had to go negotiate years ago, I said, we had not been on a date in two years when she called me on the carpet. I kept thinking ministry was going to slow down. Does that ever happen in your church? Okay, it's a myth. It's a lie from the evil one. It's never going to slow down. Sunday's always coming. You're never going to have the time or the money. And I remember telling Tricia, we're going to have to put it on the calendar. She's like, well, that sounds romantic. But everything important goes on my calendar. It doesn't get crowded out. 
it, it goes on there. And then I tell everybody I've got a previous engagement. And we learn to roll that way in our lives. You've got to create, you make the decision once and you manage it daily. So what do those habits and processes look like for you, okay? One of the worst things you can do if you lead a student pastor, lead a team member, and you're trying to help them grow their ministries is put on them, I want to see your ministry grow by 20% or 10% or 30%. It's the wrong kind of goals, okay? We talk about setting process-oriented goals that are largely based upon our habits, okay? You don't want to grow the student ministry by 10%. Instead, you're going to be able to dialogue with the student pastor you know, if we'll raise up team champions that'll go to all the middle school games and the high school games, go to lunch once a week at all the lunch rooms, you know, if we'll build into some new processes and habits into that student ministry's rhythm, guess what? The student ministry might grow by 10%. And the cool thing about that is whether the scoreboard is fluctuating right now or not, you know you're being faithful to the process. If you'll focus on the process, the scoreboard will take care of itself. It's just like saying you're going to lose 20 pounds. I think the scales are a wrong metric anyway. Muscle weighs more than fat. Amen. Can I get a witness? All right. Instead, you know, focus on if you want to lose 10 pounds, start exercising and eating better. The 10 pounds will take care of itself, won't it? Yeah. So you focus on the process. So if you're leading a team, focus on their habits, how they're spending their time. And if you want to grow, if you want the church to grow, hey, let's look at how we're spending. Let's look at our meeting rhythm. What are we talking about in meetings? You know, Aunt Edna's sick kidneys, you know? Are we talking about this race and this event? Are we really talking about strategic things that are going to move the needle and produce kingdom growth in our church? We'll never change until we change what we do daily. That's what we focus on. So process-oriented goals, all right? We'll never change until we change what we do daily. Then there's passion. Thinking more about what I think about and inspiring others. We filter our phone calls. We filter our emails. We filter our social media. I'm, I'm totally convinced we don't filter enough what, what we think about. What do you think about, really? Do you think about all the problems in your church? Or do you think about the privilege of serving your church? Do you think about all the hurdles and the limitations and the restrictions? Or do you focus on the possibilities? Show of hands, interact with me. Who are my optimists? Sort of my generally half glass, half full people. Okay. I don't understand you. Okay. My wife is an eternal optimist. She just always sees the bright side. I, I, I'm more objective. I like to think I'm a realist. Who are my realists? Okay. Keep your hands up. All right. Keep your hands up. You know what a realist is? It's a pessimist in denial. Hi, my name is Sean. I'm a pessimist in recovery. Okay? The only staff value we ever changed with our staff values was excellence. Because excellence can become a disguise for perfectionism. And nothing and no one is like ever good enough. And it will ruin you. It will ruin you. It almost ruined me. And I just didn't know how to get off the treadmill. Nothing was ever good enough. And I'm telling you, one of the biggest lies from hell I ever believed is, man, if we can just get to here, I'll, it'll be better. If we just get to here, it'll be easier. If we just get to here, I'll be happy. And we just wish our ministries away. And we've got to pay better attention to what we think about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in ourselves, faith in others, faith in what God's going to do next— all of that, truly successful people I know are optimists. They don't focus on problems. They focus on possibilities. And they lead with great passion. You take Joel Osteen, who we saw today, and Stephen Furtick, somebody I got to coach some before he even launched, okay? Two totally different personalities. Two extremely successful ministries, though. You know what they have in common? Passion. Passion. All right, Martin Luther said, you set a man on fire and people will come from miles around to watch him burn. All right. You know what I see in a lot of churches today? We've got a lot of nice people. Like we're giving the company lines. We're saying the right things, but there's, just, there's a lack of passion. There's a lack of passion. We got the blocking and tackling down. We got the systems. We went to grow. We went to arc. All right. But there's just a lack of passion. There's, it's that it factor that Craig Groeschel talks about. It's really what makes Highland special. It's the culture here that makes this, that life-giving culture they talk about here at Ark. Think about this. When Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, he wasn't teaching some new deep sermon that nobody ever heard before. 
What was his first sermon? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, that wasn't deep. Jeremiah preached that message hundreds of years before. Jesus, what's the most important thing? You can see them just hanging on. What, what is he going to say? What's the most important thing? Jesus, love God. Love your neighbors yourself. Well, that wasn't deep. Moses preached that message. Old message. And yet, he's preaching the same out of the same book the Pharisees are preaching out of. Thousands of people leaving their sermons, running over to this person's sermon. A dynamic I see 2,000 years later. People leaving these teachings over here and going over to these teachings, standing room only and waiting 45 minutes to get off campus. Absurd. Why? Why did it happen with Jesus? The Gospels tell us. Because he taught as one having authority, not as the teachers of the law. You know what made Jesus tick? It wasn't his content. It was his delivery. It was the passion. It was that look in his eyes. He was saying the same things a lot of the prophets have been saying. When they looked in their eyes, they're like, that dude's crazy. He's a lunatic, but he's smoking what he's selling. Like he really believes this stuff. And and, and people are attracted to urgent people. If where there is no vision, people perish, then where there is a vision, there's vitality, there's health, there's growth, there's life. If you took nothing else back to your church this weekend, get your worship leaders. Open their eyes, look around, and engage and and lead with passion. Pastor, take the platform with passion. Preach with passion. And I'm not talking about in some cheap, counterfeit, abusive TV preacher kind of situation, okay? People can see through that too, can't we? I'm talking about like fire in your bones. This is why you can't be doing everything. It's where it all comes together. Because you got to, when Sunday comes, you can't be exhausted. You got to preach out of the overflow of your life. You got to lead out of the overflow of your life. And passionate people inspire people and they attract great followers. And here's the good news how many of you are honest enough to admit you may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer? Okay? You don't have to be the most brilliant, just the most passionate. You don't have to, I thought I had that in my slides, but it must not be that good. Um, you, you, don't, you don't have to be the most brilliant, just the most passionate. People will follow passionate people. So work on that. Don't fall into the meetings and start focusing on problems. Be a leader, not a manager, okay? How do you do that? Well, if you think about it, ministry, 95% of what we do is not sexy. Spreadsheets, email, event planning, setup, takedown. Am I encouraging anybody? None of that's exciting, okay? Most of what we do is not exciting. Years ago, I bought into the mentality. Larry Osmond wrote about it in Sticky Church. He said, if you just assimilate people, you'll close the back door of your church. It's not true. I found out firsthand. Because you stick them at a door handing out a worship guide and you move off and leave them. Okay, it's not fun handing out sheets of paper. Except for about two or three weeks, all right? Unless a leader is walking around reminding them why they do what they do. Because they're going to be some of the first experience people have at your church. And one of the first opportunities you have every Sunday to change the way people think about Christians in the church is the people standing at the doors. But if you let them forget why they're doing what they're doing, they'll lose their passion. Same with us. If we forget why we're doing what we're doing, we'll eventually lose our passion. What is my why? Man, it's facilitating leadership growth and ministry health for leaders. Like it's it, it drives me. It gets me up in the morning. I, I don't do what I do because it's easy. I work with pastors for a living. How many of you know pastors are difficult? How many of you are sitting beside a difficult one? No, don't raise your hand. Okay? No, it's, it's a challenge. I, I do it because I'm called to do it. And, and it, I'm, I'm helping pastors brief out of isolation and get better and get their swagger back and grow to the next level, create work, healthy work environments among their teams. I'm passionate about it. Do I forget sometimes why I'm doing what I'm doing? Yeah. So every day I get up and I remember why again. Why are you doing what you're doing? You need to know. More importantly, you need to be reminding the children's ministry and the student ministry and the parking ministry, okay? They could be martyrs this Sunday out there in the parking lot, okay? They, they need to be reminded why, why, and you do too. Passion, passion, all right? People, it's the last one. Then I'm gonna get you to, Ask me some questions. 
ultimately, I measure my success and monitor my success through the lenses of the impact that I have on people. I don't know if you know this or not, but the church is people. It's people. If, 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 if the church was perfect, it wouldn't need you. If there weren't problems and problem people, the church wouldn't need us. So we have got to embrace the fact that every day we get up, it's not about the production. It's not about the project. It's not about the problem. It's not about the next event. It's not about the next meeting. This is about people. I'm convinced the primary reason Jesus created the church is because we need each other. Especially in the technological age, man, we can worship at home. We can watch messages online. We can sing in the shower. I sound better in the shower. Come on now. So what do we need the church for? Because I need you and you need me. And we need each other. You need people in your life. I think every leader needs a coach. I have two. You need mentoring relationship. PC, my pastor here at Church of the Highlands, he holds their entire lead team. You have to be in relationship all the time with three people who do what you do in the church. Because he knows if you stop learning, you stop growing. If you stop growing, the ministry will stop growing. You got to be around people. Some people, you've heard, you've, some of you are thinking, "Why? Well, I've been talking today. We, I've heard, I've, I've heard that before." Yeah, every orig, every thought I've had is not an original thought. I've learned it from someone. Think about it. Every thought you'll ever have, you learn from someone. So we need people. We need relationships. We need our. But every day I get up and I'm tempted to think it's all about me and about my task list and about my meeting and about the next thing and the tyranny of the urgent. And I forget that it's all about people. It's all about developing people. There was a time in my life early in my ministry when I used people to get ministry done. And I flipped that. And I decided to use ministry to get people done and build people. Well, we don't really have any leaders in our church and we don't really have, well, what are you going to do about it? Do you have a plan to build people, to develop people? an intentional growth plan, an intentional plan for every leader in your ministry. Loving people and serving people was so important. When Jesus got asked what the most important thing in the Bible is, he couldn't stop at love God. He had to throw in, oh, second's equally important. Love people, serve people. You know what the beauty about that is? It takes all all this dissatisfaction and condemnation we feel because we don't have as big a fastest growing church as Church X over in the other neighborhood or whatever. It takes that off of our shoulders. I'm all for the Great Commission, just not at the expense of the Great Commandment. And if you'll just get focused on loving and serving people, I'm telling you, make all the difference in the world. I had a great opportunity a lot of you guys don't have. I got to retire from vocational pastorhood at 45 years old. Launched this coaching ministry full-time. Most people do it at 75. I did it at 45. And the way it works in ministry, when you leave your ministry post, every ministry leader is an interim leader. Okay, you're going to leave. You're either going to leave when nobody wants you to leave or everybody wants you to leave, but you're leaving. I got to leave when nobody wanted me to leave. And the way it works in ministry world, you have to decrease so the next leader can increase. That's the way it works. You're going to need to fade away from the scene. Will your identity be wrapped up in who you are and what you do and your title and your role? Or do you have an identity that's separate from your work at the church? And if you finish with a team and ride off into the sunset with the team, you'll finish with your family. That's who's going to come to your graveside and see you at the end of the day. I have a morbid fantasy. I fantasize about my funeral. I do. Bear with me. My mother passed away on her 40th birthday. I was 16 years old. Presented with the reality at a young age that you don't live forever. I've outlived her now by eight years. Had some of, this, had some of the same physical issues that she's had. And I hope I don't get cancer. But I know I'm not promised forever. So I think I think a little bit more about the average person than like the end of my life. And Pastor Randy said this morning, begin with the end in mind. More often, I begin with the end in mind. I think about my funeral. Like, who who would I want to speak? 
you know, well, they have to pay somebody a lot of money. <laughs> well, they have to make up stuff. You know, I don't want to be, have you ever been to one of those funerals? You're like, that's not the guy I knew. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. You know what I'm saying? I want people to be clean. Hey, could I say, could I say something? Look, I, want to, I want to talk about the impact Sean had on me. And when he stopped in the lobby that day, I, I know my greatest impact probably won't even be in this room today. It'll be down there in the lobby afterwards when one of you comes up to me privately and pours out your heart about being burned out and quitting and your marriage being on the rocks and your wife talking to you like my wife talked to me in 2001. That may be the breakthrough moment for me, the most impactful moment for me at this conference, not being up in front of a bunch of people. How are you going to measure success? Success is ultimately being loved and respected by those closest to us. It's ultimately being loved and respected by those closest to us. You win at home. You win with your leadership team. People respect you because of who you are and the way you live, the way you roll, your character. The reason why I wanted to come and be under the umbrella of this pastor at this church, because Pastor Chris is as good, if not better, more of a man of character in that closed room behind his office than he is out on the stage. And I respect him more today, having been a part, a member of this church four years later than when I moved here. Now, how rare is that? He's a man of character. And that, my friend, is success. How will you define it? Don't lose track of it. Most of our anxiety, most of our condemnation in ministry stems from the fact that we have exchanged the world's definition of success for God's definition of success. Don't you do it. Don't you buy into the rat race. Don't you buy into everybody's fake Instagram life. Okay? You be you. Don't wear Saul's armor. You go get your little rocks down by the river and you take your slingshot and you take that battlefield. Secure in your own skin. Let me ask you a question. If David had put on Saul's armor like he tried to get him to, go out into armor and fight the battle like Saul had always fought it, what would have happened to David? I'll tell you, it would have limited his ability to fight and he would have lost the battle. Could it be God's trying to get you to shed the armor you've been tempted to wear the way somebody else has fought the ministry battles before you or is fighting them over in the next community or over at Church of the Highlands or wherever, shed all that, decide to be the best version of you and develop a growth plan for yourself to just get better. And if you get better, everyone and everything else around you will get better. And if you help your entire team get better, the church will get better. And if the church gets better, we'll grow. We'll grow. Healthy things grow. So just focus on getting healthy, getting better, and things will go well with you and your team, and it'll get better. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a short period of time, but underestimate what we do in a longer period of time. And this is, my friend, a marathon, a marathon. So run the race in such a way that you win the prize of high calling, okay? All right, we got a few minutes. I want to answer some questions. All right, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it just begins brainstorming. How are you spending your time? What are you working on now? You know, what do we, the worst thing you can do for like a young leader is just tell them, hey, I want to see, see the ministry grow. Well, if they knew how to do that, they'd already be doing it. And if you're the one in spiritual authority, you probably have some ideas about how they could restructure their time and build a team, you know, things like that. So, so it begins with a collaboration whiteboard session. It goes into a strategic session. How could we, restructure your time for the greatest return on investment. And of course, if you're the leader, the best way to illustrate that is through example. Let me tell you about a couple of things I just stopped doing, you know, and I'm, I'm focusing on these few things. What do you think the top three, five things you do provide the greatest return on investment? Well, they'll probably list those off real quick. All right, well, let's look at your calendar now. Where are those things? Hey, let's decide. Let's get those on your calendar. And then you always frame it in the form of a question. Can I hold you accountable? To doing these three things, these five things. And what I love, what I love about five is there's five days a week. So for example, if you're a senior leader, it's preaching. Okay. That's one of your top five. Shocker. How many pastors do I run into? So man, I'm just, my preparation is getting crowded out. Oh no, 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 no. You got 35 minutes every week. Shouldn't have any more. Um, 
So you you got to you got to put those most important things on the calendar first. So it begins with just a collaboration brainstorming time. And by the way, as the season of the ministry grows and fluctuates, like you need to audit that from time to time because those will change. Those will change as the ministry grows. You have to rewrite your own job description and then help everybody else rewrite those. So every six months, every 12 months, we're looking at those things and brainstorming about those things we believe that could provide the greatest return on investment. And sometimes you don't know until you've been doing them a while. Hey, you know what? These two things, you've been real busy with those, but I don't know that those things are producing fruit. Let's prune those off the list and let's put a couple new things on there. Does that help at all? Yeah. 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 Um, so earlier you were talking about purpose. Oh, that's back. That's awesome. Does this work? Hello? Hey. Yeah. Okay. Cool. They're recording, so they want these questions on mic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. So earlier you were talking about purpose and you're talking about being the best you possible. So, how can you be the best you possible if you feel like you don't even know yourself very well? Yeah. So, I'm not a big fan of like spiritual gift inventory tests the way we do them in the church. It's like us assessing our own giftedness. Have y'all seen the early episodes of American Idol? (laughs) We are not great assessors of our own giftedness. How many of you have been watching those early episodes of American Idol? You're like, where is her mama? (laughs) Mama, please tell her. You know, Simon Cowell gets to play that part. So how how did they identify their spiritual gifts in the early church? They just plugged in and they started serving. They didn't take a test. And then the church around them said, hey, you know what? You're not so good at that. You can't sing, you know, but I tell you what, when you lead, when you preach, man, you've got, you've got like a prophetic voice. So I, you shouldn't listen to most people in your church. How many of you did did I just set free? But you should surround yourself with people who love God, love the vision and love you and go to those people and say, Hey, what am I not good at? What am I good at? Ask the church to help you identify those gifts, especially those in spiritual authority. It takes some humility. If you're not the senior pastor, I'd go all the way to the top. Could I get 10 minutes of your time? Tell me what you think I'm good at. Tell me what you think I'm not good at. And then don't defend yourself. If someone tries to shape you and sharpen you and you get defensive, you just shut down your best opportunity to get better. So listen, they, they know as good or better than you do what your gifts are. And we need to do that for other people as well. Help them shape those, those gifts. We, we, we understand this at the top through ordination. That's the whole idea. I feel called to ministry. Well, a group of elders says, well, we'll see about that. We'll meet with you. We'll talk to you. We'll ask you some tough questions. We'll talk to your spouse and we'll decide if we think you're called to the ministry or if it's something you ate. Right? So I think that needs to be done at every layer. Every layer. So if a young leader comes to you and says, I feel called to be gifted on the stage and lead worship in a megachurch. You know, you can help them sharpen that gift and help them understand that. So help? Yeah. Say that again. They're wanting to record these. Earlier, uh, could you clarify what you said about excellence, where you kind of reworked your... Yeah, I'm for excellence, but like for, for those of us who are perfectionists, who are my perfectionists? A little bit OCD ministers to you, okay? My whole family's like that. So if you're not careful, it can be a disguise for perfectionism, this excellence thing. So we change that value to resourcefulness, which is really doing the best we have with what we've got, stewarding what we have and maximizing resources. So if we've got a $100 budget for an event, we're not going to complain about what we can't do. We're going to squeeze that $100. We're going to maximize it. We're going to be thankful for it. And if we're faithful with that $100, maybe God will bless it and it'll be better next time, bigger next time. So it keeps, it even keeps your leadership teams from whining and complaining about not having enough money, not having enough budget, not having enough equipment, you know, whatever. Hey, that's not our responsibility. We're not responsible for what we don't have. We're going to maximize what we do have and then God's going to bless us with more. Does that help? Yeah. Some people define excellence that way. But excellence can get us in trouble too, that desire of excellence when nothing's better. Am I, does that make sense to everybody? Yep. Okay, good, good. Yeah, questions? Yes. Uh, mine would be more of an affirmation, uh, continuation of what you just said more than a question. But it goes hand in hand of trying to be that excellence and what you said about living life in rhythm. And um, it, it's true for so many young ministers. Um, 
I remember my two-year-old daughter, as we pulled into a church, started clapping and said, yay, we're at daddy's home. And, and there's so many times that we can get confused with excellence and it being a distraction from our family and from that life of rhythm. So I thought it was a very good uh, point that you made there and just want to af- uh, affirm that. It's great. Well, you learn to laugh at yourself and enjoy the journey. I mean, if you can look back on a you know, ministry enterprise, a leadership, if you preach, if you can look back on a message you preached five years ago and be proud of it, okay, you haven't improved. Okay? But if you look back, you're like, wow, we could have done that better. Great. We just learned something. We don't focus on failures at Courage Lee. We focus on lessons learned. Hey, we just learned something. Do it better next time. And if you're not careful, there's a thin line between confronting your mistakes, confronting your sin, and condemning yourself because of your sin. Condemning yourself because of your mistakes. One is of the Lord, and one's of the evil one. And he, he, will, he will condemn you if he can, because he, he can tempt you to quit. Okay? Uh, speaking of living life and rhythm, you made the statement, if you don't do this, you'll quit. If you don't build teams, raise up leaders, and then rest— do you have any wisdom or practical points on how to find the, or build those teams and raise up those leaders? Yeah, so so t- taking another analogy, I'm a big college athletics fan. Any college athletic, any college athletics fans? Okay, all right. Love all that college uh, basketball, baseball, football is my favorite. You know all that stuff. You familiar with the recruiting process? There are one star through five star athletes. All right, now one and two star athletes, they make these great highlight reels and put them on YouTube. And they, they send them out to all the coaches, and they've got literally got people helping them do that. Sometimes some stage moms and dads sending that to all the coaches. Five-star athletes don't have to do that. Okay? Everybody comes to them. Okay? In ministry, all right, five-star performers have to be recruited. You One- and two-star performers, they'll sign up on a card. Hey, we need some volunteers, children's ministry, dream team, preach on volunteerism, whatever. A bunch of people will sign up. 99% of those will be one-star athletes, which the church needs them, okay? But if you want to build a great team, they've got to be recruited. This is why you can't be running around on Sunday being a doer. That's why you're standing at the door with the coffee or a bottle of water doing nothing, looking for the next victim. I mean, volunteer. <laughs> I mean, leader, okay? I'll tell you a quick story. George, George and uh, D. Bigham walked in. I was standing in the lobby nothing, doing nothing. Saw this couple walk in. You can tell, right? Deer in the headlights when they walk in. They're looking around like this. You can just tell. They just stop right inside the door because they don't know what to do next. And I just proactively went over to them, okay? They had just moved from Chicago. They were leading the financial ministry for Willow Creek, Bill Hybels' church, had moved to Atlanta, thought they'd check out churches. They were going to, uh, we had a, a campus of, of uh, North Point, Andy Stanley's church, about a mile away. They were going to visit our church this Sunday because it was closer to the house and Andy's church the next Sunday. Because I walked up to them and introduced myself, they stayed. Never visited another church, ended up leading the financial ministry of our church for about six or eight years. You know, they have to be recruited. I valued them. I saw them. I went after them. So one of the questions you can ask your lead team members is, who are you recruiting? Who are you going after? And I'm all for, by the way, if one of my team members can steal one of your leaders, I'm all for it. It's a competitive spirit. If they're not being cared for over there, I'd rather them be recruited over there than lose them out of my church. So it's every man and woman for himself, okay? If, I can, if this person over here can lead them and recruit them and take them to a higher level than this person, that's the benefit of the church. It's the body, okay? The gifts serve the body. The body doesn't serve the gift. So that's, that's how we build great teams over time. The great college coaches know, yeah, we got some good X's and O's. But we're focused on recruiting great talent first and foremost. And people say, well, we don't have those people in my church. Well, how many people are in your city? How many people are in your state? How many people do you know in the United States? How many people do you know in our world? Get out there, recruit, find somebody, and, and then, then spend time with them and develop them, help them even go to a higher level. Does that help? Yeah. Another question. So, yes, back here. Sometimes we do have leaders that are, we do spend a lot of money to uh, invest a lot on their spiritual growth. By the end of the day, they will only be hot for a season. And uh, it's covered that uh, it's part of what you try to do. 
uh, they try to pull you down and have a great influence on the members. Yes. How do we handle it? Yeah, so one, you know, I talk about this in my book, Be Mean About the Vision. They've got it done in the bookstore. Especially when your ministry starts a little momentum, okay? But this is very important what I'm about to tell you, so don't tune out on me, okay? When your ministry starts getting a little momentum and it starts growing, okay, you're going to have some vision, vision hitchhikers. Hey, we want to go your way. Wherever you're going, we want to go there, okay? But if you're not careful, when my, when my t- teenage girl started driving, I said, look, don't stop and pick up hitchhikers. That's good. Because hitchhikers sometimes turn into hijackers. And in our ministries, that's true as well. So number one, there's a reason why Paul warned Timothy, don't put people into leadership too quickly. I made that mistake. Got some scars to prove it. Anybody else? Don't put people in leadership too quickly. Don't give them influence too quickly. No, you come in and you serve. You serve humbly. I don't care what you did before in your last church. Why is it people want to leave the church they didn't like, come to your church and make it like the church they left that they didn't like? Does that happen to anybody else? It's the evil one, okay? So make them plug in and do menial tasks. Trisha and I sat across the table from a couple. She said, we're too spiritual, spiritually mature to serve coffee. I said, well, we're not the church for you because we don't find spiritual maturity that way. Jesus took up a towel, okay? Secondly, be proactive. When your antenna gets up, this person is not 127% on board, okay? Be proactive because it's probably the Holy Spirit. You're probably right. We'll second guess ourselves. We'll no, they're good. They're probably good people, you know, or we, we just make fear-based decisions. We're afraid they're going to leave. They're people of influence. They're people with money. So we're afraid of what's going to happen if we go to them. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. So where is that emotion coming from? The evil one. So we let this person get in there and gain influence over time. And a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. So be more proactive. Hey, it could just be me, Pastor. Could just be me, man. What's your name? Marie, it could just be me, man. But just lately when we've been talking, these little things come up. Just, you know, could cause me to believe that we're not 127% on the same page. And one-on-one, privately, sometimes believe to say, well, since you brought it up, since we're here and it's private, we at coffee and everything, you know, and I'm like, great, here we go. Come on out. Come on out and give them a safe place to be honest and say, well, that's great. We're not changing. This may not be the best place for you. And just be honest. It takes courage to leave, my brother. It takes courage to leave. In the best circumstances, though, Malid's probably going to leave, and he's going to take three or four families with him. That's just the way Malid is. <laughs> Isn't it, Malid? It's, just, it's the flesh. Okay? But you know what? I call that growth by strategic regression. Okay? little pruning. Okay? And you'll be better for it. And you'll have two families come up to you and says, thank you for getting rid of Malid. They will. Thank you. He was sucking the life out of us, you know, and out of our ministry. I'm telling you, I've experienced this personally. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? So be proactive. Be proactive, okay? And then then grieve, okay, because it hurts. They're going to leave your church and defriend your spouse on Facebook. Welcome to the ministry, okay? And you grieve it. It hurts. It hurts, okay? But you realize it's okay. I'm called. Go. Jesus got so lonely at times, he says, hey, well, I, don't, I have no place. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you sure you want to go with us? It's hard. You know, it's hard. So just be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, Jesus said, with pe- especially people new in the church. All right? One more. We'll be around afterwards. Anybody else got a question? Yes. Hi. You, you mentioned, like, what do I need to stop doing? And on a day-to-day basis, that can be a little bit easier, but how do you identify those things maybe on a larger scale, like an event or a ministry mm-hmm. or sometimes a service that like isn't, is a lot more energy than it seems to be rewards? Yeah. One of the things you can do, like ministries tend to have a life cycle. So one of the things you can do is almost gr- draw it this way. So they tend to be all exciting and have a lot of growth here. Just like a church, they tend to plateau and energy. And years ago, we had like a, a, a monthly men's event and a monthly women's event that our team 
went up and charted? Like, where do you think it is? Is it exciting? Is there lots of energy? Andy Stanley says, kill everything in your church for which your staff has to manufacture energy. <laughs> That's not in the Bible. It ought to be. Okay. So we realized like, like there's, there were all of them put it back here. Like it was, there's still a lot of people coming. Okay. It was higher in attendance than it was back here. Less energy, less enthusiasm, less fruit. People weren't joining the church because of it. At one time, it did that. So it's just kind of taking an audit of what's providing return on kingdom return on investment and what's not. And about once a year, I think it's a great exercise. Just take a whole team through. You know, is it in the initial excitement and growth stage? Is it plateaued or is it declining in? And you can decide whether to sort of reinvigorate these, reimagine these. There were seasons of our church where the worship services ended up back here. And we had to realize, man, we need to relook our worship services. What got us to here may not get us to there. So we need to relook all of that, re-envision it, or we need to kill it in the name of Jesus. Bury it. And some people are going to leave, but you're not here to reach Christian consumers. Are you? Okay. So let them leave. If they're only here for themselves, let them leave. And you do what's best for the whole to reach the lost. Most churches stop growing because they've chosen to. So you you do those things and focus on those things that are going to provide the greatest return on investment and don't make fear-based decisions, make faith-based decisions based on what's going to produce the fruit, okay? Was this helpful? Thanks for allowing me to share with you. I'll be afterwards, then out at the booth, okay? Make sure you download the book, okay? All right? Love to talk with you about coaching. See you soon. God bless.